On June 14, 1968, Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, and Ginger Baker, better known collectively as Cream, released their third and final studio album. A double LP titled Wheels of Fire, it featured some of the blues trio's most iconic work. The psychedelic rock opener White Room became a top 10 hit in multiple countries in both North America and Europe. Clapton's wah-wah-infused guitar licks and solos in White Room exemplified the ongoing change in the function of the electric guitar in popular music. In addition to that song, the first disc features absolute banger after absolute banger. The trio demonstrated why they're the OG supergroup, each showcasing their wizard-like skills on their instruments. While the first disc does include a couple blues covers, it's the mind-blowing original work on there that immortalizes them as 60s icons. Although you could simply pigeonhole the record as blues rock, there exists a considerable amount of psychedelic rock, and I even hear some elements of folk rock, baroque pop, and even metal. But the first half of Wheels of Fire, the first disc I just described in detail, has literally nothing to do with this episode. In March of 1968, Cream performed several dates in San Francisco, California, notably at the Fillmore. The second disc from Wheels of Fire exclusively features performances from those gigs. The most notable and enduring of those performances is undoubtedly the opening track, their rendition of Crossroads. The roughly four-minute song features a repetitive blues rock riff, a simple yet catchy melody, and perhaps the most basic beat from Ginger Baker on that album. The pinnacle of the song occurs at the 2 minute and 32 second mark when the sleepy blues tune awakes into an explosive jam featuring maybe Eric Clapton's best solo of his long career. Jack Bruce, for his part, absolutely shreds on the bass, and I'm not sure what Ginger Baker is doing back there on the skins, but hey, it works. The song then briefly returns to that blues riff before featuring a pretty interesting coda. While Crossroads didn't chart in Cream's home country of the United Kingdom, the song became the band's third and final Top 40 single in the United States. Unlike the trio's other two Top 40 hits, Cream did not write Crossroads. In fact, there are few covers that sound so distinct from the original as Cream's version of Crossroads. Perhaps that's because the original was recorded 32 years prior in a studio over 4,500 miles from Cream's home country. Originally titled Crossroads Blues, Robert Johnson wrote the song sometime in the early 1930s. The exact date, like much of Robert Johnson's life, is unknown. What we do know about his life, it was hard. An African-American man, Robert Johnson was born in the Jim Crow South in 1911. He spent most of his childhood in Robinsonville, Mississippi. While under the care of his mother and her husband, Dusty, Johnson learned to play the harmonica, juice harp, and then ultimately the guitar. In 1929, Johnson married, but the following year, his wife died in childbirth, and tragically the child passed as well. In 1931, he remarried a woman named Coletta Kraft, who unfortunately also passed away shortly after. In the 1920s, slide guitar playing became the defining element of Delta blues, the dominant form of country blues found in the Mississippi Delta. He spent time in the late 20s in Robinsonville around well-known Delta blues guitarists such as Willie Brown and Charlie Patton. Sometime, most likely in the early 1930s, Robert Johnson left Robinsonville for about a year. When he returned, the community was stunned by the masterful Delta Blues guitar skills that Robert Johnson developed. Due to the large improvement in such a short period of time, the legend that Johnson sold his soul to Satan at a crossroad in exchange for guitar godlike skills was born. Of course, there is a non-mythical reasoning behind his significant improvement in his playing, but I won't attempt to minimize the lore of Robert Johnson. 
Anyways, with his newly acquired heavenly guitar skills, Johnson settled in Helena, Arkansas, where he played with noted blues musicians such as Howlin' Wolf. To make a living, Johnson employed an itinerant work schedule, traveling throughout the Southeast, as well as major cities including New York and Chicago, performing basically anywhere he could. He would play house parties, juke joints, and logging camps. He even at times took to busking. In addition to his own music, he would perform songs by other artists of different genres, such as Bing Crosby and Jimmy Rogers. If you haven't heard of either of those guys, Bing Crosby sang White Christmas, and Johnny Cash did a cover of a Jimmy Rogers song, so you know he was a big deal. The reason in 2023 anyone can appreciate Robert Johnson occurred during the years of 1936 and 1937 when in a hotel room in San Antonio, Texas, he recorded 29 original songs, including Crossroads Blues and my favorite Robert Johnson song, Sweet Home Chicago. A quick story about Sweet Home Chicago. My first job out of college was teaching Spanish and music at a Catholic school in a suburb of Daytona Beach, Florida. For my fifth grade music class, I themed it as the history of American music. And when we went over the history of the blues, I had the kids sing Sweet Home Chicago. And it remains one of my proudest moments as a teacher. Like the life of Robert Johnson, little is known about his death. The confirmed facts remain that he died on August 16, 1938, near Greenwood, Mississippi. He was 27 years old. Even in 1938, as it is now, 27 is far too young an age for anyone to pass. But since the work of entertainers is consumed by the public, fans tend to mythologize artists that meet their maker prematurely. And in the 20th century, few American artists became as mythical as Robert Johnson. Besides the wild rumors that exist regarding the acquisition of his guitar skills and the circumstances of his untimely death, Maybe the greatest contribution to his legend remains the 27 years of life at the time of his passing, which spurred the famous, or rather infamous, 27 Club. With respect to music, this club includes musicians that died at the age of 27. The eeriness of this club rests on the consistency of iconic inductees to this unfortunate club. Since the late 60s, the club has added generational icons such as Rolling Stones founding member guitarist Brian Jones, guitar god Jimi Hendrix, rock goddess Janis Joplin, the peculiar frontman of The Doors Jim Morrison, the face of alternative rock Kurt Cobain, and the most recognizable jazz singer of the 21st century, Amy Winehouse. The trope of this reoccurring coincidence has become part of the mainstream lexicon, with the 27 Club getting referenced in songs by popular artists such as Fall Out Boy, Daughtry, Mac Miller, Halsey, Juice World, and Frank Ocean. While the concept of the 27 Club and its members perplex and amaze me, today on this episode, I am creating a new term to honor multiple artists that died far too early as well, but do not find themselves in the tragically esteemed fraternity. Please allow me to introduce to you the Not Exactly 27 Club. I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90 Stand. Today, I will discuss artists that died much too young, but either a bit before or after the age of 27. Since this is a 90s podcast, all members of this club must have released their most notable work during the 90s. I also will not spend time talking about members that I've discussed in depth in the past or plan to discuss in a future episode. Some of the artists featured in this episode are household names, while others you may never have heard of. Regardless, they are all fucking legends.
It doesn't take many listens to this podcast to discover my love for Pearl Jam. I've probably mentioned them in some way in more episodes than not, and that's mainly because of within my all-time top five artists, they sit comfortably at number two. I'm sure you're just dying to hear the rest of my list, so fine, I'll tell you. I mentioned this way back in the second episode, but my all-time favorite band are the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Number three is another member of the Not Exactly 27 Club, but will not be discussed since I already detailed his career and only non-posthumous album on episode three. That is Jeff Buckley, of course. Number four is another episode three alum and is low-key the reason I moved to Atlanta, so yeah, that's Outcast, obviously. My number five artist of all time is the only one amongst my all-time faves inactive during the 90s. In fact, this band broke up 20 years before the clock even struck midnight to enter the 90s. That being said, they probably influenced more artists discuss on this show than any other. That would be my father's favorite band, The Beatles. Anyways, back to Pearl Jam. I won't give all the history of the band since I'll probably do a signature song episode about them at some point, but it's fair to say they wouldn't have ever formed if it wasn't for the untimely death of the first discussed member of the Not Exactly 27 Club. You probably haven't heard of this member, primarily since he died three months before the release of his band Mother Love Bone's debut and sole studio album titled Apple, released in June of 1990. While you may have never heard the name Andrew Wood, you might know the band formed as a tribute to him. That would be Temple of the Dog, fronted by his best friend Chris Cornell, and you most certainly know several songs written about him. Those include Say Hello to Heaven by Temple of the Dog, Far Behind by Candlebox, and my favorite, Wood, by Allison Chains. Those tunes have a combined stream count on Spotify of roughly 500 million. Since all these artists are from Seattle, he clearly made quite an impact on people within the music community in the Emerald City. So who was Andrew Wood the musician, and why would Pearl Jam never have formed without him? To answer all of that, we have to go back to January 8, 1966, to Columbus, Mississippi, the day Andrew Wood was born. Wood, better known to friends and family as Andy, and his two older brothers were raised by their mother and father in Bainbridge Island in a home that their father, a Vietnam vet, built. Bainbridge Island is only 10 miles from Seattle, but requires a ferry to get to. Andy's desire for the arts and the spotlight became noticeable to his family at just three years old when he unsolicitedly sang his own melody with his own words in front of the family. His mother would also overhear would have conversations with himself enacting interviews. It's fair to assume that Andy's obsession with music and showmanship came from his love for artists such as Glenn Campbell, Elton John, and Kiss. He especially loved Kiss's 1975 album Alive. When his parents would run out to do errands as a kid, he would blast that album as loud as he possibly could. Then in 1977, he and his brother Kevin went to see Kiss perform. The two brothers were forever changed, as they both realized they wanted to be rock stars. In 1980, they formed a band with Andy on bass and vocals, Kevin on guitar, and their friend Regan Hagar on drums, calling themselves Malfunction. Ever the showman, Andy emulated his Kiss heroes, performing with heavy face makeup and giving himself the stage name Landrew the Love Child. With Kevin's cheetah-like speed on lead guitar, Andy's powerful vocals, and Regan Hagar's quick-tempo drums, Malfunction carried both metal and punk traditions. However, by 1986, when they received professional recording, their music had slowed down a bit, echoing the handful of Seattle bands gaining attention on the local music scene playing mid-tempo aggressive rock music. 
These eight or nine bands were given the label grunge, and a fraternity amongst these groups was established where friendly competition and mutual fandom reigned supreme. While it appeared that things in Andy's musical life were headed in the right direction, his drug experimentation that started as early as 12 turned into a dark vice. It got so bad that he went to rehab, where Wood communicated the turmoil in his life, including his dysfunctional family, abusive relationships, and emotional volatility. Andy was serious about getting clean, though, even giving all of his paraphernalia to his mom. When he got out of rehab, a number of beautiful changes occurred in his life. His friend Jeff Ament, who at the time was playing bass in another popular Seattle grunge band called Green River, got him a job at the cafe he worked at. And his friend Chris Cornell, who was playing in another grunge band in the area named Soundgarden, let Andy live with him in his house in Seattle, effectively ending his residence in Bainbridge Island. Also, Hagar set him up with a girl he met at a thrift store named Zana La Fuente. Andy and La Fuente would begin a romantic relationship. In addition, after leaving rehab, Green River broke up. With little going on with malfunction, Andy and Regan Hagar joined forces with three members from Green River, bassist Jeff Ament, as well as guitarist Stone Gossard and Bruce Fairweather. Hagar was later replaced on drums by local Seattle hero Greg Gilmore. The five-piece rock band called themselves Mother Love Bone after Parliament's 1975 iconic album Mothership Connection. Since all five members of the band had made a name for themselves in the local scene, a lot of excitement surrounded them when they started performing in the late 80s. Ament sent Mother Love Bone's demo to a friend of his that was working for Geffen Records. Subsequently, word got around the industry about Andy's band, and they ultimately linked up with Michael Goldstone, an executive at the time for Polygram Records. In March of 1989, they released their debut record, the EP titled Shine. While the EP received the label of grunge due to their association to Seattle and past grunge band, the EP sounds almost nothing like any other band with that label. Shine sounds more like a cross between Guns N' Roses, Fishbone, and Elton John. Of course, Andy's powerful and charismatic voice shines throughout, no pun intended. The success of the EP led to a 32-date tour beginning in April of 1989, opening for the English blues rock band The Dog de Amour. Then, in the fall of that year, Mother Lovebone headed to the plant studios in Sausalito, California to record their debut LP, Apple. During this time, Mother Lovebone was experiencing a rapid ascent that proved difficult to the early 20-somethings, creating tensions within the band. Andy began using substances again to cope with the band's turmoil as well as other personal issues such as his now toxic relationship with La Fuente. He described his declining mental health and relationship issues in his lyrics included in Apple such as Bone China, Stargazer, Come Bite the Apple, and Heartshine. Now you're probably wondering why I've rambled on quite a bit about Andy Wood's life and career almost with the timeline involving exclusively the 80s. Well, three things happened in the 1990s that make his legacy most associated with that decade. On July 19th, Mother Lovebone released Apple. The album is filled with banger after banger. While multiple ballads can be found on the album, I would describe the overall sound of the record as funky classic hard rock. The album received positive reviews from the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and All Music. Unfortunately, Andy Wood would not live to see Apple's release. On March 16, 1990, Andy overdosed on heroin. He spent three days in the ICU. However, 
On March 19th, he was pulled from life support tragically, bringing his young life to an end. He was 24 years old. Due to Andy's death, Mother Love Bone split with Ament and Gossard ultimately forming Pearl Jam. It's not difficult to hear Mother Love Bone's influence on Pearl Jam, especially on their first two albums. Mother Love Bone's songs such as This Is Shangri-La and Holy Roller sound eerily similar to Pearl Jam classics Even Flow Once and Animal. In addition to the tributes to Andy mentioned earlier, Mother Love Bone's most popular song, The Ballad, Chloe Dancer slash Crown of Thorns, was featured on the soundtrack of Cameron Crowe's acclaimed rom-com Singles, the influential film that detailed romance in Seattle's grunge scene. If you've never listened to Mother Love Bone before, definitely check out my favorite songs, which are This Is Shangri-La, Holy Roller, Stardog Champion, and Gentle Groove. For the next inductee into the Not Exactly 27 Club, I will introduce him with not only one story, but two. Wow, look at me go. Anyways, when I was a freshman in high school, I exclusively listened to rock and metal. So when March rolled around and I took my seat at Lake Mary High School's 2008 Battle of the Bands, I was beyond stoked to listen to my peers perform rock and metal. Through the first eight bands, I was not disappointed. There was a death metal band that blew me away, a White Stripes type band fronted by my friend Mitch, and a hard rock band that did a cover of Britney Spears's Hit Me Baby One More Time. I was sure one of those bands would win, or at least they would beat out the ninth and final band, Johnny and the Appleseeds. At 14 years of age, my taste in music was rather closed-minded, so when this bluegrass band fronted by Johnny, a lanky kid with a modified bowl cut, I dismissed them almost immediately and figured they wouldn't even sniff the top three. Of course, they won. Then in May... When yearbooks came out, I wasn't surprised that the frontman Johnny got the superlative for being, quote, born in the wrong decade. If there's any music icon born in the wrong decade, it would have to be this next member of the Not Exactly 27 Club. Now on to the second part of the introduction. As I mentioned in the second episode, I lived my first 12 years in New York State. Unlike my cool guy adult self, I was pretty awkward as a kid. I had friends, but I had trouble forming deep connections with them, since at some point in most of the conversations with them, I would start naming the U.S. presidents in order or seek to settle the debate as to which dead Yankee player, Joe DiMaggio or Mickey Mantle, had the better career. But when I started playing guitar and drums in middle school, I started relating better to my peers. Well, at that point, I was living in Florida. Through the glory of social media, I rekindled old acquaintanceships with kids in New York that had also picked up an instrument or enthusiastically started listening to rock music. One of these kids was Dan Kotman. I don't remember much about Dan when I lived in New York. We were never good friends, but I'm sure we went to each other's birthday parties and got along well enough when our teachers paired us together in the buddy system at recess, you know, and field trips, etc., when I moved to Florida and we became quote-unquote friends on social media, we got closer since we had both picked up instruments and started listening to rock music from previous generations. One day, most likely in 2007, Dan posted an in-memoriam-type post about a singer I never heard of. In fact, I had never heard of their band either. But the emotion that Dan expressed when describing this deceased singer was impressive and endearing and, of course, relatable. So as soon as I read the name Shannon Hoon and his band Blind Melon, I had to check them out. Richard Shannon Hoon was born on September 26th in Lafayette, Indiana. Hoon went by his middle name to distinguish himself from his father, also named Richard. His middle-class upbringing included a heavy interest in both sports and rock music. 
In high school, he excelled at football, wrestling, and track. Bob Dylan, The Beatles, and The Grateful Dead were among the artists he enjoyed listening to most. Unlike Andy Wood, whose songwriting coincided with his first steps, Hoon didn't write his first song until he graduated high school in 1985 and formed his first band, Stiff Kitten. In his early childhood, Hoon dealt with legal troubles in Lafayette, prompting him to move to Los Angeles in 1989 to pursue a career in music, a la fellow Lafayette-born singer, Axl Rose. It didn't take long before Hoon formed a band filled with L.A. transplants featuring musicians from Pennsylvania and Mississippi. The band called themselves Blind Melon, named after the opening track Blind Melon Chitlin from the debut comedy album of the legendary stoner duo Cheech and Chong. While on the West Coast in the late 80s and early 90s, L.A. rock was dominated by glam metal bands such as Motley Crue and Poison, and up in Seattle, grunge was becoming something of a cultural phenomenon. But Blind Melon rebelled, sticking to their 1970s rock and roll roots, channeling Leonard Skinner and Led Zeppelin and the Grateful Dead in their sound. Their insistence on channeling their 70s rock influences earns them from me the superlative of 90s band born in the wrong decade. You see what I did there? The band displayed their retro uniqueness on their 1990 demo titled The Good Foot Demo, which included four songs. The demo screamed 70s with vibes of blues, folk, funk rock, and hard rock. People within the industry enjoyed Blind Melon, especially Capitol Records, who signed the band to a record contract. While the band recorded an an EP with Capitol Records called The Sippin' Time Sessions. It never saw the light of day due to the band feeling the record was overpolished. Despite the EP never hitting the shelves, Hoon found himself on the Billboard charts in 1991 when Axl Rose summoned him to perform backing vocals on the Guns N' Roses song, Don't Cry, which peaked in the top 10 on the pop charts in November of 1991. While The Sippin' Time Sessions never got released, many songs from that record ultimately appeared in one form or another on their self-titled debut album released September 22nd, 1992. Blind Melon recorded the LP at a communal home rented in Durham, North Carolina. Referred to as Sleepy House, the atmosphere of the house contributed to the independent spirit of the album. While unfocused at times, Blind Melon's diverse eponymous debut features more than a handful of bangers. Blending 70s hard rock, funk rock, power pop, folk, and psychedelic rock, the album at times feels like a collection of Zeppelin B-sides, other times it sounds like the jam band Fish, and in brief moments it gives off heavy Janis Joplin and Jefferson Airplane vibes. The album and the band's eclectic nature was spearheaded by Hoon himself. While Hoon certainly didn't have the most powerful rock voice of his generation or the most unique timbre, few singers of his era exuded the charisma within their vocals that Hoon did. That charisma penetrated the bubble, separating the humanity of listener and performer, most notably on the album's second single, No Rain. The deceptively radio-friendly tune blends folk rock and blues. While the song sounds happy and upbeat, Hoon sings explicitly of depression and loneliness. His vulnerability struck a chord with listeners as the single peaked at number 20 on the Billboard Hot 100 in November of 1993 and peaked at number one on the rock charts. The song also charted within the top 40 on the pop charts in Australia, Austria, Ireland, New Zealand, the UK, and Canada, where it hit number one. The success of No Rain and the album's funky debut single, Tones of Home, spurred blockbuster album sales of Blind Melon's self-titled effort, with the LP ultimately selling nearly 4.5 million copies and peaking at number three on the Billboard Hot 200 album charts. Hoon's life became tumultuous during the band's ascent. Naturally, Blind Melon's touring schedule increased exponentially, opening for iconic names such as Lenny Kravitz, Neil Young, and the Rolling Stones. 
During this time, Kuhn's already existing mental health issues that he communicated openly not only in No Rain, but also in other songs from Blind Melon, such as Change and I Wonder, manifested itself subsequently in increased hard drug use. His dependency on substances perhaps led to erratic behavior on the road, culminating in arrests in 1993 and 1994 for indecent exposure at a show and for assaulting a security guard at the American Music Awards, respectively. His addiction and behavior led to touring stoppage for Blind Melon so Hoon could seek treatment. Following a stint in rehab, Hoon and Blind Melon headed to the French Quarter in New Orleans, Louisiana to get in the studio and record their follow-up LP titled Soup. Hoon's sobriety didn't last long as he failed to remember much of the recording process for the record. Soup came out nonetheless on August 15, 1995. Much darker and bluesier and more experimental than its predecessor, the album failed to appeal to critics and audiences with a huge drop-off in sales compared to its predecessor and a brutal 1.5 out of 5 star review from Rolling Stone. In a retrospective review, Stephen Shahori of the AV Club noted the lyrical themes Hoon employed on the album such as birth, life, depression, remorse, death, and redemption. He also mentioned the diverse instrumentation on soup, which included flute, harmonica, banjo, accordion, mandolin, trumpet, tuba, and the kazoo. Perhaps the public and critics alike in a post-Kurt Cobain world wanted Blind Melon to be the Woodstock 69-sounding band that No Rain suggested, and that's not what soup could offer. Due to the poor album sales, against the advice of Hoon's mental health counselors, the band embarked on a tour to try to change the luck of their second LP. On October 21, 1995, roughly a month after the tour's commencement, Shannon Hoon was found dead on Blind Melon's tour bus from an apparent cocaine overdose. He was 28 years old. In that AV Club piece, Shahori mentions that Glenn Graham, Blind Melon's drummer, mentioned that he felt Hoon was penning his goodbye within the lyrics of Soup, and songs like Mouthful of Cavities support that with lines like, quote, because one of these days this will die, so will me. In 1996, Blind Melon released a compilation album filled with unreleased recordings. The surviving members opted to title the album Nico, the name of Shannon Hoon's daughter that was born only a few months before Hoon's untimely death. While the eccentric singer passed nearly 30 years ago, much of his music has aged like fine wine, and despite being labeled as a one-hit wonder, Blind Melon still gets roughly 4 million listeners on Spotify a month and have over four songs with over 20 million streams on that platform, including No Rain that has over 444 million listens. To put that in context, that's more streams than 90s classics such as Seal's Kiss from a Rose, Bulls on Parade by Rage Against the Machine, and Sublime's What I Got. Although No Rain probably finds its way onto most 90s playlists, if you want to check out some other brilliant Blind Melon songs featuring Shannon Hoon at his best, my favorites are Change, Galaxy Slash Hello Goodbye, Two Times Four, Soak the Sin, Skinned, and their cover of Steppenwolf's The Pusher. As I mentioned back in the first episode, my fandom of Nirvana set the tone for the rest of my discovery of music during middle school. It's when I first heard the terms alternative rock, metal, and grunge. My love for Nirvana and the Foo Fighters implored me to explore other bands with similar vibes. I somehow stumbled upon this website called digitaldreamdoor.com. The website dedicates itself to creating lists, ranking categories of different media, most notably music. 
If you know me, you can imagine how often I flocked to this webpage, not only to see where these presumptive gods of music judging ranked my favorite artists, but also to discover other artists. Besides Nirvana, I remember Pearl Jam receiving the highest ranking on basically any list having to do with the 90s. So I checked them out, and as you know, I love them. One list on this website was for the greatest rock singers of all time. They listed Chris Cornell of Soundgarden pretty high, and I had heard of his band a few months prior when Soundgarden was listed at number 14 on VH1's list of the greatest hard rock bands of all time, so I checked them out and loved them too. So of course, I needed to know more about Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. The holy bible of public information known as Wikipedia described them as grunge, a term I first learned when I heard it used to describe Nirvana. On both Wikipedia articles, those three bands were grouped together as part of the quote-unquote Big Four of grunge. The other band mentioned as part of that list was a group called Alice in Chains. Now, I hadn't given them a listen yet because when I first read about them, I kept seeing them described as the heaviest of the grunge bands. In early 8th grade, I hadn't quite reached my metal era yet, so I was reluctant to give them a listen. But as a self-identified enthusiastic grunge fan, I acquiesced and got their greatest hits album. I certainly didn't regret it as I thoroughly enjoyed their music and wasn't put off at all by their heaviness. If anything, I thought it gave them an edge, making them accessible to metal fans not really into alternative rock. Quickly, my favorite thing about Alice in Chains was the lead singer's uh, mythically powerful vocals and unique timbre. To that point, I honestly felt that he was the best male singer I'd ever heard. I went to my now-established website, Digital Dream Door, to see where that vocalist ranked among the website's greatest rock singers. I found it dumbfounding that he sat far lower than I expected, because even though I hadn't heard most of the singers on the list, my love for his talent transcended rationality, and so my angry internal monologue thought, come on, he's got to be at least in the top 10. That singer, of course, is Lane Staley. Lane Staley was born on August 22, 1967 in Kirkland, Washington, an eastern suburb of Seattle. His parents divorced when he was young, and he spent the majority of his childhood with his mother, Nancy McCollum, and her husband, Jim Elmer. Elmer described Staley as a gentle, kind, and intelligent kid, and McCollum noted his brilliant sense of humor. Elmer took Staley to see Elton John for his first concert in 1975. When he was nine years old, Staley wrote in his Dr. Seuss book, About Me, that he wanted to one day be a professional singer. Staley began his musicianship as a drummer at the age of 12 and jammed out to legendary bands such as Black Sabbath, The Doors, and Deep Purple. In 1984, a young garage band by the name of Sleaze roamed the halls of Shorewood High School in Shoreline, Washington. With two guitarists, a bassist, and a drummer, the band still needed a singer to get the ball rolling. One day in those halls, the drummer ran into his buddy Ken Elmer, the son of Lane's stepfather, who told the drummer, quote, my stepbrother Lane plays drums but wants to be a singer. You should give him a call. At the audition, standing at six feet in sporting jeans with the names of metal bands bleached on them, his appearance impressed one of the guitarists who thought he looked the way a lead singer should. Staley sang Motley Crue's Looks That Kill for his audition, impressing the boys of Sleaze with his ability to emulate Vince Neal's high-pitched vocals but also adding his own unique touches. So the band named Staley lead singer without any qualms. Eventually, the band changed their name to Alice and Chains, with the middle word spelled just with a capital N and an apostrophe, similar to Guns and Roses. 
In the summer of 1987, Staley met 21-year-old guitarist Jerry Cantrell at a party in Tacoma, Washington. Cantrell recognized Staley from a show of Alice and Chains he had seen and really liked his voice. The two quickly became friends and ultimately roommates. Not too long after their friendship commenced, Cantrell's band Diamond Lie fell apart. So he started a new band with Sean Kinney, a guy Staley connected Cantrell with on drums, and Mike Starr, a bassist that had played at a band with Cantrell years prior. Also around that time, Alice and Chains broke up and Staley joined a funk group. As legend has it, Cantrell's new band needed a singer and Staley's new band needed a guitarist. So they agreed to play in each other's band. Apparently, Staley was reluctant to join Cantrell's band, so Cantrell, Starr, and Kinney purposefully auditioned a bunch of really bad singers in front of him to essentially guilt him into joining the band. It worked. Staley ultimately ditched the new funk group to play in Cantrell's new full-time band. They initially used the name Diamond Lie, however, they ultimately settled on Alice in Chains. That's in I-N, a name which Staley's previous band reluctantly gave approval to. In the late 80s, Alice in Chains started making a name for themselves, gigging around Seattle, playing their unique brand of metal, which was funkier and more polished than the grunge sound of their Seattle brethren, but darker and bluesier than the glam metal bands 1,000 plus miles south. They broke into the industry when a local promoter named Randy Hauser, not to be confused with the country singer, paid for them to record a demo titled The Treehouse Tapes in 1989. The demo ultimately found its way to a rep at Columbia Records, who was impressed enough to sign Alice in Chains. The band recorded their first studio album, Facelift, between December 1989 and April 1990, both in L.A. and Seattle. Columbia released a brief promotional EP titled We Die Young, named after the EP's first single and ultimately the opening track on the record. Due to unanticipated success on alternative radio, the label rushed the release of the LP, Thus, August 28, 1990 marked the release of Alice in Chains' Facelift, and alternative rock has never been the same since. If I may opine, I find Facelift to be a solid debut album. The musicianship is tight as hell. The music is dark, heavy, and slow, yet accessible. Staley's chops on the album are second to none. He demonstrates impeccable range and showcases his haunting vibrato and immense power. The album found significant commercial success following the, re the release of the album's second single, Man in the Box, which not only became a top 20 hit on the rock charts, but with its grunge label is widely credited as ushering in the mainstream era of grunge. Facelift went on to peak at number 42 on the Billboard Hot 200 albums chart and to date has sold over 2 million copies. As Facelift became increasingly popular, so did the amount of shows the band played to support the record. They ended up opening for some of the biggest names in rock and metal history, such as Van Halen, Iggy Pop, Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer. During this time, the combination of increased fame, earnings, and free time on the road led to the members of the band messing around with hard drugs. Amongst their growing substance use, the band completed touring and headed to Malibu to write their next record. According to Cantrell, the artistic direction during their rehearsal sessions headed towards aggressive instrumentals and heavy lyricism in turn creating an artistic improvement that he likened to the growth between Nirvana's Bleach and Nevermind. The band began recording their second LP, Dirt, in April 1992. They recorded in multiple studios, splitting their time again between Seattle and the Los Angeles area. While recording in Southern California, they had to slam the brakes on the project in late April of that year when the riots began in, re began in response to the verdict in the Rodney King case. The band briefly fled to the desert with the bassist and singer of Slayer to hang out until the riots subsided. 
the band returned to the studio and recorded until midsummer. While recording, Staley created a shrine for inspiration inside the recording booth that included candles and a picture of the Last Supper. Allison Chains released Dirt on September 29, 1992. The album received praise from critics and sold incredibly well among the public. Dirt received 4.5 out of 5 stars from AllMusic, a 5 out of 5 score from Kerrang!, and an A rating from Entertainment Weekly. Commercially, the album septupled the chart position of its predecessor, peaking at number 6 on the Billboard Hot 200. Septupled is a word, I promise. To date, the record has sold roughly 5 million copies. To call Dirt anything other than a masterpiece is to not know the meaning of the word. The record is one of those few albums where every song is brilliant and there are pretty much no skipovers, except for the rather silly interlude sandwich between the songs Godsmack and Hate to Feel. Musically, the album has moments like Down in a Hole as well as Wood, which sound like vintage grunge. The other two genres often used to describe Dirt include sludge metal, which can be found on songs like Sick Man, and Doom Metal, which probably would be the flavor I most associate with the album. Doom Metal rears its ugly yet breathtaking head on songs like Junkhead, Rain Would I Die, and most notably on Rooster, the six-plus-minute Vietnam War-themed tour de force. Both Cantrell and Staley took care of the vast majority of the writing, with Staley writing most of the songs on the album's second half, which actually has a semi-conceptual element to it. From Junkhead to the album's penultimate track, Angry Chair, Staley pens a narrative detailing the dangerous trajectory of hard drug use, with the protagonist and the former experiencing the intense euphoria from the quote-unquote dragon. However, by the end of the story in Angry Chair, the protagonist has confronted the deepest depths of addiction and resides in a quote, field of pain. Vocally, Staley puts on a goddamn clinic. I would point out the vocal highlights on the album, but his pipes are on point in every song. Cameron Maxwell of Medium.com described his vocals on the record as, quote, booming, which is probably the best adjective for his voice. Apparently, Dirt's producer, Dave Jordan, embellished Staley's vocal through triple tracking him and putting delays on his tracks. Since the success of Dirt catapulted Alice in Chains to rock and roll gods, they endured another grueling tour schedule, and Staley was not the only member of the band to suffer from addiction. Bassist Mike Starr's drug addiction became so bad he was dismissed from the group and replaced by Mike Ines, known for his work with Ozzy Osbourne. In September 1993, the new lineup entered the London Bridge Studios in Seattle to record what would be, in my humble opinion, their last great record with Staley as frontman. The band entered the studio with no material and in one week wrote, recorded, and self-produced a seven-song acoustic EP titled Jar of Flies, which demonstrated the versatility of the band. Jar of Flies came out on January 25, 1994, and made history becoming the first EP to ever hit number one on the Billboard Hot 200. Like I said, the album is acoustic, but it doesn't sound like merely a stripped-down version of their metal vibes. It maintains the darkness and slow tempo, but leans heavily into Cantrell's blues roots and the haunting harmonies between Staley and Cantrell. Staley wrote most of the lyrics on the album, detailing his continuing suffering in the face of his crippling heroin addiction. One of the most enduring songs from the EP, Nutshell, is an intense and painfully vulnerable cry from Staley with lines like, quote, My gift of self is raped. And as a consequence, he morosely proclaims, quote, If I can't be my own, I'd feel better dead. Even when Staley didn't write the lyrics, his drug addiction was front and center. In the album's fourth song, No Excuses, 
Jerry Cantrell writes a beautifully platonic love song for Staley, encouraging his recovery while also lamenting the strain that Staley's drug use had put on their friendship. Maybe it's symbolic, maybe it's not. But Staley and Cantrell sing the entire song in tandem, perhaps standing in solidarity with each other through both Staley's heroin addiction and also Cantrell's alcoholism. Either way, the song resonated immensely with rock audiences as the song became Allison Chain's first number one hit on the rock charts and only number one with Staley on vocals. Following the release of Jar of Flies, Staley went to rehab to try to kick his addiction. Not too long after finishing rehab and newly sober, Pearl Jam Leeds guitarist and recently recovered addict Mike McCready invited Staley to front his new project, a supergroup called Mad Season. McCready's hope was that being around sober musicians would help Staley. Mad Season released their sole studio album titled Above on March 14, 1995. While not matching the success of Allison Chains' most recent two records, Above peaked at number 24 on the Billboard Hot 200 and featured the beautifully written River of Deceit, a subdued bluesy number which peaked at number two on the rock charts and to date has roughly 58 million streams on Spotify. A month following the release of Above, Allison Chains got into the studio in Seattle to record their final full-length album with Staley. It's not clear when he relapsed, but Staley's sobriety was short-lived, making the record difficult to record. However, Cantrell referred to it as, quote, the fucking coolest thing, and I'm glad to have gone through it. I will cherish the memory forever. For Staley, who was on the brink of collapse, also deeply appreciated the writing and recording of the album, stating, quote, I'll cherish it forever too, just because this one I can remember doing. Allison Chains released the self-titled album on November 7, 1995. The self-titled album debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 200. It's often referred to as Tripod due to the album's cover of a three-legged dog. While my least favorite of their studio albums recorded with Staley, it's pretty impossible for Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley to make subpar music together, so the album is solid for sure. It sounds kind of like a polished blend of Dirt and Jar of Flies. The self-titled LP did feature three top ten singles on the rock charts and includes two of their discography's most popular hits, Again and Heaven Beside You, as well as two of their fan base's favorite deep tracks, Shame in You and Sludge Factory. Due to Staley's worsening addiction and consequent declining health, the band did not tour to support the album. However, on April 10, 1996, Lane Staley mustered up whatever remaining strength and energy he had to take the stage in Brooklyn to give one last brilliant performance. Since it was part of MTV's Unplugged series, Staley's bandmates played only acoustic instruments. And during the stage, while Allison Chains' instrumentalist played the intro to Nutshell, Staley sat in front of the microphone, poetically only seconds before his cue to start singing. If you ever get a chance, I beg of you to watch that Unplugged performance of Nutshell on YouTube. While I usually don't recommend people to look at the YouTube comments, definitely scroll through the comments to see not only the outpouring of love for Staley, but the recognition of the gut-wrenching beauty of the moment. Other otherworldly performances during that concert include Down in a Hole from Dirt and Brother, a deep track from their short 1992 EP, Sap. After the Unplugged show, Staley only performed six more times in public the last being three months later in Kansas City, Missouri, opening for KISS on their reunion tour. Staley overdosed after the show, though he did survive. The rest of Staley's life is relatively unknown. As his addiction and health deteriorated, he became extremely reclusive and only recorded a handful of songs. He recorded his two final songs with Alice in Chains in 1998, titled Get Born Again and Died. 
The two songs were featured on Alice in Chains' four-disc compilation, Music Bank, released in October 1999. As I mentioned, it's impossible for Lane Staley to sound poorly. That said, on these two songs, it's clear that his addiction stole key components of his voice. Staley entered the studio for the last time in November 1998 to record covers of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall Part 1 and 2 as part of the supergroup named Class of 99, featuring several alternative rock musicians, most notably Tom Morello of Raids Against the Machine. A frequent observation of Staley in these final recordings is the very noticeable lisp in Staley's voice, which people attribute to the loss of his teeth from frequent drug use. Not much is known about the solitary final years of Lane Staley's life. The general consensus is that he spent that time using hard drugs, especially heroin and cocaine, if he wasn't using, he was either playing video games, making art, or sleeping. In April 2002, after it was discovered that Staley hadn't made a withdrawal from his bank account in two weeks, police, accompanied by Staley's mother and stepfather, visited Staley's apartment where they found his deceased and partially decomposed body. The toxicology report revealed that he had died two weeks prior on April 5th from an overdose of speedball, which is a combination of heroin and cocaine. He was 34 years old. In an eerie coincidence, Lane Staley died exactly eight years to the day after Kurt Cobain committed suicide on April 5th, 1994. Alice in Chains recorded so many unbelievable songs with Staley, but if I were to recommend five songs to listen to to convey the depth and versatility of his vocal genius, I would recommend Man in the Box, Love, Hate, Love, Damn That River, Junkhead, and Nutshell. Andy Wood, Shannon Hoon, and Lane Staley Three members of the Not Exactly 27 Club all left us too early, but also left us with brilliant art. While Andy Wood never had the stardom of the other two members, his charisma and influence opened the doors for some of the most iconic acts of the 1990s, who went on to influence bands well into the aughts. Shannon Hoon's refusal to conform to the rules imposed by the rock scene surrounding him enabled an original sound that made it impossible to pigeonhole his band Blind Melon. He led the charge that brought the Woodstock era to the 1990s and gave those craving the blues rock sound of the 60s and 70s spoon-fed to them by their parents something nostalgic yet unique and relevant. Lane Staley fronted one of the most beloved bands in rock and metal history, influencing iconic acts such as Godsmack, Three Days Grace, Manic Street Preachers, Queens of the Stone Age, and Stone Sour. So while before today there previously was no club in musical lore, to honor them, like the 27 Club has been able to recognize Cobain, Winehouse, Hendrix, and the rest, today, we recognize these three powerhouse frontmen as three of the founding members of the Not Exactly 27 Club. And three, of course, is what Shannon Hoon would say is a magic number. I want to thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to check out the second part of this episode next Tuesday, January 23rd, as well as the playlist of songs mentioned in this episode titled Songs from the Not Exactly 27 Club on Spotify. Y'all have a great rest of your day, and whatever it brings, hopefully music is involved. Again, I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90 Stan. Take care. <laughs>